Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm a fourth grade teacher, PhD student at Utah State University, and someone who just wants to know more about reading. This podcast is about bridging literacy research into practice. Every episode, you'll hear from a literacy researcher about their work, why it matters, and how to turn it into practice in your classroom. Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I hope your summer is going very well. One quick item of business, I wanted to give a big thank you to you. Yes, yes, you, the listeners of the podcast. I'm here because I believe that when literacy teachers are given access to current research, they make better instructional decisions in their classroom. And as I watch the podcast grow, it's clear to me that folks out there like yourself are believing the same thing. The podcast is growing because there are listeners spreading the word and sharing episodes they find valuable with their colleagues. You know, all the other standard metrics are great. So, you know, rate the podcast, uh, share it on social media, tweet it, whatever. But the one thing that I believe will make the most influence is sharing the podcast. So consider who might benefit from the show and let them know. Together, we're going to help teachers help kids become readers. So thank you. And today's episode is no exception to that. I am very excited uh, for the discussion that you are about to listen to. Homogenous grouping is a very popular practice, especially in younger grades. But how effective is homogenous grouping? And do different students benefit more or less from it? My guest today recently published a study investigating those very questions. Her name is Dr. Susan Patrick, and she is a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Leadership, Policy, and Organizations at Vanderbilt University. Her research interests include school improvement and school-based mechanisms that shape student outcomes, and she's also interested in how educational policies and practices can influence racial and social economic equalities. Dr. Patrick and I have a great conversation about homogenous grouping, different schools of thought around the practice, how effective the practice is statistically, and who benefits from it. We finish our conversation with talking about how to maximize homogenous grouping in your classroom. This is a great discussion on a very popular practice that you don't want to miss. After the show, stick around for my two cents on the topic. Dr. Susan Patrick, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You recently published an article in the Elementary School Journal that uh, investigated homogenous grouping with early elementary grades. Why did you first decide to investigate homogenous grouping? So this came from my own experience as a teacher. I was actually a middle school teacher, so I taught fifth, sixth, and eighth grade. Um, English language arts. And so particularly in my last teaching placement, I was in a small school where we had one class per grade level, a huge amount of variation within the class in terms of, you know, where students were starting when it came to their reading skills. And so this is something I just struggled with as a teacher, um, thinking about like how and in what ways should I group students? And so when I started my PhD program, you know, it was still kind of on my mind as something that I was interested in. 
Um, and then I actually started this project as a first semester PhD student. We were in a class um, where we were kind of learning how to do research. Um, and so we were asked to pick a large national data set um, and then kind of, you know, think about some research questions that you could answer with that data. Um, and that's how I came to this was just like my interest as a teacher and then learning some research skills um, as I started my PhD program and those kind of came together for this paper. Wonderful. So let's let's get to some foundations. Uh, you prefer the term homogenous grouping and achievement grouping versus the term ability grouping. Can you walk us through the differences of these terms and why you prefer homogenous and achievement rather than ability? Yeah, and I think you see both educators and researchers use a lot of different terms, not even just those three, to talk about grouping. Um, I mean, grouping can take many forms, and I think how you talk about grouping can also take many forms. Um, in particular, I like thinking about it in terms of either homogenous or achievement grouping, because I think it connotes the idea that in many cases, teachers are grouping students based on performance. So that might be on a reading inventory, a diagnostic, a formative assessment, or their own perceptions of students' skills. Um, I think it's largely not about ability, um, which I think of something as some, that you can't easily measure as a teacher, um, something kind of underlying about students. Um, and so I prefer homogenous or achievement grouping because I think it kind of shows that idea that this is based on some kind of met metric of a performance, not necessarily underlying ability. So you mark a distinction then between performance and ability, that those are two separate ideas. They, they have overlap, of course, but they're two separate things. So when we talk about homogenous grouping, what, and, and in context of this uh, study that you did, what specifically are we talking about? Yeah, so I define it fairly broadly. Um, so in this case, for this study, I'm defining it as any type of grouping practice um, that creates more homogenous learning environments and specifically within a classroom. So within a single classroom, how do teachers place or group students so that they're with students that have similar performance levels, similar skills, similar needs, um, with the idea that then teachers can target resources, instruction, materials, et cetera, to those smaller groups. So there, so it's grouping within a classroom to, um, you know, make sure that the smaller groups have similar levels of achievement, but the instruction can vary what type of instruction these groups are receiving. Is that correct? Within yeah, the absolutely. And I mean, and as you know, as I think, you know, anyone who's been a, a literacy or English literature teacher would know, I mean, this can look dr dramatically different from class to class. And so there's some benefits and some drawbacks of using this very broad definition, because um, this is going to encompass lots of different types of instructional practices. Excellent. So the, the practice of homogenous grouping, it, it's not without debate. There um, are definitely different perspectives around it. Can you explain different approaches or different ways of thought of how homogenous grouping is perceived? I mean, I think it's it's useful to think about this both from a like educator, practitioner perspective and from a researcher perspective. And so I think from a practitioner perspective, there's lots of different kind of methods of grouping. Um, in this paper, I'm not really investigating those different methods, although there is research that has looked at that, you know, looking at guided reading, looking at literacy stations or other methods of grouping. Um, I'm coming at it a little bit more from a research perspective and how different 
kind of research communities have thought about or framed grouping and kind of what um, following the work that's been done by um, Adam Gameron, who is this education researcher and sociologist, he's written about grouping for decades, many decades. You know, he started researching grouping in the 1980s. And so, you know, he talks about it, and this is kind of how I think about it as well, um, as there are these two kind of camps <laughs> of ways of thinking about grouping. One is thinking about it as differentiation. So thinking about it as an instructional best practice um, that we as teachers want to make sure that we're differentiating our instruction for um, students based on kind of where they are. Um, so grouping allows for that, right? Because it means that you can take a small group and think about, you know, what students' skills are and needs are in that group. And then you can give them different materials or different types of instruction that kind of hit their needs where they are. Um, so I think there's definitely kind of a, a group of researchers and I think a lot of practitioners who think about grouping as kind of a, a way of differentiation. Um, and that's kind of how you frame grouping. Um, I think there's a separate group, and these groups often don't talk to each other, um, who thinks about grouping as a form of stratification. And so when I say stratification, kind of what I mean is this idea that you create um, within a school, you create differing levels of access to learning opportunities. Um, and so like those folks who think about grouping as stratification would argue that it's like something that happens within schools that creates unequal access for students. Um, and it can do that in two different ways. One is that, um, you know, grouping, how kids are actually placed into groups um, may be unfair. Um, teachers might have kind of imperfect information or rely on their own biases um, or cultural biases that privilege kind of certain um, types of, you know, ways of speaking and reading. And they use those in grouping students. Um, it also could be creating these unequal access to learning if, you know, the different groups get different types of instruction um, that can create, you know, different opportunities to learn. You know, you can imagine, and some research has seen this, although that's, it's pretty old at this point, that, you know, teachers interact differently, like with their, you know, highest performing groups then they act with their lowest performing groups. Um, there's different access to materials or access to rigorous instruction. So that's kind of the idea behind thinking of grouping and stratification. And so largely, I think these groups have not talked much to each other um, about how kind of these two things might coexist. Um, grouping could both be, you know, differentiation of instruction, but also, you know, creates potentially um, unequal access to learning. You know, I when I read that part in your paper, I was um, I, I you know I've heard both approaches in my studies. I've uh, you know my the more of the sociological perspective with the stratification and then the academic side of, of differentiation. But I hadn't heard it framed within homogenous grouping. But it, it interests me because I think of um, you know like there's uh, you know Richard Allington did the study in the 80s where you know he found that the lowest readers were even accounting for their errors. They were interrupted more than the higher achieving readers and, and sort of saying that the whether you know implicitly from the teacher that the that the student was almost disallowing or not really supporting that student to become a better reader because of their more frequent interruptions of you know not allowing that that reader to get volume and um, yeah it's, it's interesting a very interesting perspective yeah. 
And I think, you know, a lot of this may be, in fact, be unconscious, you know, like, and thinking about it, even with the youngest students, right? Like, you know, sociological research that's been done about, like, you know, groups within even, you know, kindergarten, first grade classes, right? Where you might have, like, the red group and the green group and the blue group and the yellow group, <laughs> you know, students themselves can pick up on these, like, slight distinctions um, that, you know, being in the blue group is better, um, than being in the yellow group. Yeah, yeah. I, hopefully that, you know, these groups can kind of talk in that. And even within a classroom, you know, even just being aware of, you know, the two different perspectives can allow for teachers to make better instructional decisions or just be aware of their instructional decisions to, you know, make sure that, yeah. you know, there's equal access to resources and instruction, um, but also being allowed to differentiate and meet, meet students where they are at. So there's a lot of research that's been done on homogenous grouping in the past. Can you give us a brief overview of some of the findings from that research? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I mean, this is something that's been researched a lot for a long time. <laughs> and so I would say a lot of this research happened in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, but you've seen some more recent research um, on it as well. It can take a lot of different forms. Yeah. Um, so some of this research has happens like within classrooms where like, you know, someone is actually observing what happens between different groups. But a lot of the research is actually more quantitative research that looks at kind of differences in reading growth or reading trajectory based on things like how teachers report on their grouping practices. So whether they group, how much time they spend in groups, et cetera. Um, how, um, where students are placed. So are they in the highest reading group or the lowest reading group or in between? Um, or kind of other things about students. So, you know, some research has looked at this, you know, is grouping more beneficial for certain types of students based on, you know, what their initial reading skills, based on their demographic background, et cetera. Um, so I would say there's some consensus among um, recent research that grouping can and so often is associated with higher reading gains. Those are pretty moderate. Like they're not huge reading gains, they're pretty small reading gains. But there's also evidence, I mean, this gets back to these two different framings, right? Um, that, you know, grouping may benefit certain students more. Um, so in particular, um, research that's looked at the differences between, you know, students who are in the highest reading group, students that are in the lowest reading group, comparing them to students who aren't grouped at all. There definitely is some evidence of that stratification of, you know, kind of the rich get richer, students in the highest achieving groups tend to do better when they're grouped, um, students in the lowest achieving groups tend to do worse. Um, and so you kind of have both things happening um, in the prior research that's been done about grouping. On the podcast, we, we try to keep it practitioner friendly so we don't get too deep into the weeds with methodological <laughs> approaches and the statistics, but you know, as, and I didn't realize this until I read your study, but it's, as a researcher, it's challenging to study homogenous grouping just by deciding you know, what you're going to measure and the, and the outcomes. And you might have, you already touched on that a little bit, but can you talk about some of the challenges around um, doing research around homogenous grouping and really determining how effective it is? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this comes down to, and I think this will make sense to practitioners, you know, there's a lot that goes into these decisions about grouping. So like, 
you know, both a teacher's decision to say, I'm going to use this type of grouping in my class and this is what it's going to look like, as well as teachers' decisions about, I'm going to actually place students into groups. Um, a lot of things go into those two decisions. Um, and much of that, it's really hard to observe in research. And so, you know, in the research that I've done here and that a lot of people have done, it's relying on kind of surveys that teachers are reporting on their practices, not necessarily like deep um, observation of those practices. And so the real challenge then is thinking about this idea of what's the right comparison. Um, so, you know, some research is comparing classrooms that use grouping to classrooms that don't use grouping. Um, but the challenge is that you want to like know what, you know, the actual use of grouping is doing when it comes to students' performance and growth. Um, and so thinking about like, how can I find classrooms or create comparisons that are very similar, except for one uses grouping and one doesn't. Um, when you think about the idea of grouping placements, so are you in the high group or the middle group or the low group as a student, you can also think about there's lots of decisions that go into how students are being placed, many of which are really hard to know um, if you're not the teacher or you're not in the classroom. Um, and even for teachers, probably, like some of it is probably even hard to articulate um, because it has to do with like nuances of the class and of the different relationships in the class. Um, and so similarly, it's really hard to think about who is the right comparison. And so in past research, kind of what a lot of researchers have done um, is, you know, think about this idea of we can collect information about students and teachers and classrooms and we try to kind of account or control for that information. And so the kind of hope is that then you can create comparison groups where the biggest difference is you're grouped, your classroom uses grouping or it doesn't, or for a student, you're in the high, the medium, the low, or you're not grouped at all. And you can kind of create these comparisons that make sense. Um, but you have to make a ton of assumptions. Um, to like create a good comparison group. And so that's kind of the real trick of trying to do this. Um, it's definitely not easy. And I think there's been a lot of critiques of past research that are very appropriate um, because it's really hard as a researcher to make those decisions. Thanks for outlining those. I, you know, I, I see that really great teachers, they, they think like researchers to a degree, or maybe it's researchers think like great teachers, but of making those instructional decisions and the nuances and knowing that, you know, homogenous grouping is a practice, but you're going to pair that practice with, you know, literature circles or leveled reading or, um, you know, direct instruction. So, uh, yeah, there are a lot of nuances there. You used data from the early child longitudinal study for your analysis. Will you just give us a quick oversight of what the early childhood longitude study is and why it was appropriate, an appropriate data set for you to use for your analysis? So this is a federal um, research program that's been going on for a number of years. And so um, it's a study that's been connect conducted in two waves. It's a nationally representative study of incoming kindergarten students. And so they did one set of data collection for students that started kindergarten in 1998, and then another um, set of data collection for kindergarten students who started kindergarten in 2010. So I'm using data from that more recent wave. Um, the, the great thing about this data, it follows students over time. So it's starting in kindergarten and then following them through elementary school. 
Um, but it also collects a lot of information, um, information about students themselves, um, their families, their teachers, their schools. Um, and so for my purposes, that's really helpful because I'm able to account for a lot of different things about the students, their teachers, and the schools. Um, but also in particular, they ask questions about instructional practice. And so for, for this study, they ask of teachers about grouping and they also ask teachers not only about their general practices, but for the students who are in the study about their specific group placement. Um, so both of those things are really critical for me as a researcher to be able to um, study kind of both the, um, you know, what, what's happening with grouping and then what's happening with group placement. So you, so within this larger data set, you looked at the, the specific aspect of homogenous grouping. What did your study aim to add to the previous literature and what sort of things were you looking at? Yeah, so the kind of big idea with this paper is that kind of as I talked about before, a lot of the prior research um, on grouping has tried to take kind of all of these observable traits about students, teachers, schools, and create these kind of equivalent comparison groups. So one that uses grouping and one doesn't, or one you know that looks at group placement. Are you in the high, middle, or low group in your class? And so I'm doing something similar, but I'm using a different method um, that takes the longitudinal nature of this data into account, because this is following students over, over multiple years. And so in particular, I'm looking at students um, from kindergarten through second grade, so those first three years of school. Um, and I'm particularly interested in thinking about students who are grouped, homogeneously grouped in some years, but not others, or whose group placement changes from one year to another. Um, and so the benefit of this approach is that you're comparing students to themselves. Um, and so a lot of the things that like you can observe as a researcher, um, you can kind of account for when you're using kind of the same student as their own comparison. Um, and so that's kind of the benefit of, of kind of what this paper is doing is it creates a different type of comparison group. It's not perfect um, and there still are issues with it, but it helps kind of think through um, some of the limitations of past research and try to push forward to creating a better comparison to understand kind of how grouping is associated with reading growth. So there was sort of two areas of, of findings. Uh, the first one, what did you find when you compared when students were grouped versus when they were ungrouped? So when I just look at like, so in this case, the comparison is between, you know, students whose teachers have said, yes, I use achievement grouping um, during reading instruction to students whose teachers say, I don't use grouping during reading instruction. And I do that in two ways. I use it, I do it in the way that I just described where I actually compare a student to themselves. Um, and I also do it with like all the students in the data set, comparing grouped and ungrouped classrooms while controlling for or counting for a lot of things about students and teachers and schools. Um, and in both cases, I find it actually pretty similar answer um, that students who are in classrooms that use achievement grouping have slightly higher reading growth. Um, but I think it's important to note that it's it's pretty small difference. Um, so it's about 4% of the typical growth that's made by like a early elementary student in a year. Um, so it looks like this is this evidence would suggest that like on average, 
um, students in classrooms that use achievement grouping do slightly better than students in classrooms that don't use grouping. You know, I mean, there's trade-offs there of, um, yes, the grouping did benefit, but, you know, 4% is pretty minimal. And I think one of the things to, to consider and think about here as a, as a practitioner, right, is that this is an average difference, right? And so within this group of teachers, I'm sure there's drastically different uses of homogenous grouping. And for some of those teachers, it may have had, you know, it may be leading to great growth. And for others, it's not. Um, so this is just an average effect. Um, and so for an individual teacher, there's going to be, you know, variation from that. Absolutely. So once you did that sort of first analysis, you dug a little bit deeper and investigated differences between low, middle, and high achievement groups. And this is where we start to get into nuance. This is where it gets really interesting. So in this analysis, what did you find? So I did kind of two steps to this. Um, so the first step was kind of changing the comparison. Um, so I'm no longer just saying, you know, you're in a classroom that doesn't use grouping versus a classroom that does use grouping, but instead using students' um, reported placement. So because I have teacher survey information about individual students, I'm able to know like, well, this student was in the lowest achievement group in their class, or this student was in the highest achievement group in their class, or they were in one of the middle groups. And so what I'm able to do then is to compare students in those specific groups to students who are ungrouped, or in the case of the student um, comparison where I'm looking within the same student, um, you know, about half of the students in this sample actually changed from year to year in terms of either their group placement or being grouped versus ungrouped. And so this creates this opportunity to again see, like, you know, do you see differences in this relationship between grouping and reading growth depending on group placement? Um, and so this gets to this differentiation, or sorry, this gets to this um, stratification argument. Like, is this better for certain placements versus others? Um, and so this is one where the pattern of the results are the same, whether I use kind of this traditional way of comparing or compare within student, which is called student fixed effects. Um, but the magnitude of the differences um, is quite different depending on the method that you use in the research. Um, but in both cases, what the findings suggest is that students who are in the highest groups, so the highest achievement groups in their class, um, experience more reading growth when compared to ungrouped students. And then students who are in the lowest reading group in their class experience more less reading growth when compared to ungrouped students. Um, so this kind of goes to this argument of stratification where students in the high groups benefit and students in the low groups do not. Um, but there's a big difference in the magnitude of that difference, depending on the kind of method that you use. And so in the method where you compare within student, which is kind of my preference, you see that the difference is between the lowest groups and the highest groups is about 12% of the average reading growth for a student in a given year. That's a good amount of difference. Um, it's not as big as prior research has found because a lot of prior research has used different methods. Um, but it's still, you know, something to consider is that at least on its face, it looks like reading growth um, is really benefiting these students in the highest group more. Um, that's what that would suggest. Yeah. You know, it's it's tricky when with the quantitative research that a lot of times it doesn't 
answer why. You know, it gives you, it, it lets you understand a phenomenon and, and, you know, to what degree is this phenomenon happening, but it doesn't, you know, that why is always trickier <laughs> to, to yes. pin down. Definitely. And that's where like, you know, I think uh, qualitative work or, or research in classrooms um, can help um, better understand that phenomenon. Um, and then I should also say, I mean, there's a second part of this analysis that I also did, um, which gets a little bit more complicated, technically complicated, but the idea behind this analysis is that um, I also wanted to know how much this, this difference um, varied based on where, you know, where students were when they started. Um, so their kind of initial reading skills. Um, some of the past research, I mean, the past research on this has actually been kind of mixed um, about whether kind of higher versus lower performing students may benefit differently from grouping. Um, and so what I generally find um, when I look at that is that overall, there's kind of this evidence that grouping may benefit kind of lower performing students, but and not really benefit higher performing students. When you think about like students who are coming into kindergarten, first grade um, or second grade kind of above or below average in terms of their reading skills. Um, but there's kind of this really nuanced finding, which is kind of hard to think about um, in a lot of ways, where um, it only benefits these lower performing students when those lower performing students tend to be in the middle or high reading groups in their class. Um, so this is kind of like a counterintuitive finding or on its face, it's like when you first think about it, you're like, how is that possible? <laughs> um, but the way that I do think about it in the research is that I compare students um, across this national sample. And so lower performing students in the case of this national sample are students who are kind of below the national average um, when they start these three grades. Um, but within their classroom, they may be, you know, higher achieving students relative to their classmates. Um, but it, what this I think indicates is that for these students, the really the benefit of grouping comes when they're in these middle or high achievement groups. Um, definitely a signal that something is happening within classrooms that may influence kind of how students um, experience grouping when it comes to being in the low group versus being in the other groups. Um, certainly something that uh, kind of goes along with this stratification argument that something is happening that's different when you're in the low group versus when you're in the middle or the high groups. Um, and I don't know what that is. I mean, getting back to your point, like I don't know why <laughs> that happens, but at least this research would indicate that it is, there is, it looks like there's something on average that's happening um, that changes the experience of grouping. Um, for students. I think that's what good research does, right? It answers some questions, but then asks a lot better <laughs> questions. And I, I think that's yeah. what's going on here. So, you know, let's, we've, we've talked a lot of the data and the findings and let's try and, and give some uh, practical implications for teachers. So, you know, a major takeaway um, is the lack of progress that lower achievement readers can experience from homogenous grouping. What can, in your opinion, from your perspective, what can teachers do to support these lowest readers in homogenous groups? So I would say, I mean, two things. 
some that's coming from research, this specific research, but some that's coming from other research that's been done on grouping. Um, and in general, I think best practices about grouping um, suggest that grouping should be done in a flexible way. You know, teachers should reevaluate group placement. Um, this is not something that I can observe in this study. So I don't know, for example, in these classrooms, you know, what's actually happening if students are switching groups. So I kind of just have this static measure. Um, but a lot of other work that's been done would suggest that like kind of best practice would suggest that, you know, teachers are, you know, regularly as much as is like practical, um, like reevaluating students' um, performance, using formative assessments or diagnostics, and then moving students around in ways that would make sense. And so you can see how like that would actually, you know, mitigate this issue of being in the lowest group if in fact that is changing. Um, also, I mean, I think there's a lot of grouping that can be done that's not just like low, medium, high, but is about specific skills, right? So like, you know, this group needs remediation on these specific skills. It's not just that these are kind of the lower performing students overall. Um, and I think that's another way that like research would suggest you can mitigate this problem. Um, is that you're really focusing on specific skills, not like overall performance levels. Um, and I think it comes back to also that sociological research that you may have less of an issue when it comes to thinking about like status or students like kind of um, observing these performance differences across groups. Um, if, you, if you're thinking about grouping in a flexible way as a teacher and you're thinking about it, you know, in um, a way that really is about differentiating for different skills. Um, I think the other thing too is kind of more of a um, internal process for teachers and a reflective process about, you know, I wanna use these groups, I wanna do differentiation. And so really thinking through what does that mean for the experience of students? Um, and, you know, I think that's something that can, you can get help with from, you know, instructional coaches or other folks in the building about like, what do I actually do <laughs> when I'm with these different groups? And, you know, are those, you know, is it, some of that's gonna be appropriate differentiation. You know, they may need different texts, they may need different supports, um, but are there kind of other things that are happening? I mean, you, you, you mentioned the idea of like, are you interrupting more? Um, or are you giving the same levels of opportunity um, for students to engage or participate? Um, even your time, some research has been done on like how teachers use their time in the classroom. Um, and so there's some evidence to suggest that like higher performing students may just get more teacher attention um, and or the nature of that attention may be different. Um, so I think some of it is like just thinking through, um, you know, what does it mean for the students um, that they're in these groups and like, what are you doing differently? Um, and some of those differences are going to be good and appropriate. And some of them may be things that you don't intend. Um, so kind of thinking through that um, and having people help you think through that. Because um, sometimes, you know, it's hard to do that in the moment and having someone else come in and observe or help you think through that can be really helpful. Excellent. So, you know, maybe we can set up sort of a, an example and a non-example here. So a, a, a non-example of or, a, you know, a, perhaps not the best way to use homogenous grouping would be, you know, setting it up once at the beginning of the year and those groups, those are the groups that they're going to be the whole year. And then those groups are just based off of some sort of initial placement tests, but not necessarily 
uh, you know, attending to specific, you know, phonics skills or fluency skills. Um, and then that, you know, the, you know, obviously the teacher isn't, you know, investigating perhaps implicit biases or uh, looking at, you know, the ways the instruction is designed. So that might be a non-example, but then an, a good example would be a teacher that uh, is using the homogenous grouping to target specific skills that is keeping those groups fluid, you know, that as achievement changes or needs changes that groups are reevaluated on a regular basis and then tries to keep, you know, uh, an equitable uh, instructional style and making sure that the instruction the students are receiving are, you know, best practices and, and you know, fair across the board. Is that an appropriate, did I miss anything? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, sounds easy, yeah. right? No, I mean, I think <laughs> I think it's really important to note here, right? Like, this is really difficult. Um, you know, like this is one of the hard things about being a differentiation and and being really critical about your practice. I mean, this is really hard work. Um, and so I don't want to discount it and just say like, yeah, just do that and everything will be fine. Um, I think it's really hard. It's really hard work. Um, but I think it's certainly something that like the, the body of research would suggest that, you know, doing those things in concert with each other is really going to help support, you know, students growth um, and their performance overall. So, you know, perhaps we can't say this for sure from your study, but, you know, we could make the assumption that teachers that are sticking to that best practice, hopefully they would see, you know, higher than that 4% average that you found on the effect size. And then, um, and then those lower students, not that there isn't that widening gap, that Matthew effect that's happening. Hopefully that right. that would help be mitigated to make sure it's successful for all readers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's definitely the hope. Um, Cause I, you know, I don't think, I would not read this study to say like grouping isn't worth it. Um, but just that like both of these things are happening. I mean, I talked about those two framings, right? And I think that this is evidence that actually like, yes, both and <laughs> um, that like grouping both can be, a, you know, potentially a useful tool for differentiation, but it also can be a tool for like creating inequities. Um, and so I think just keeping those things both in mind um, seems like an important implication here. Excellent. Well, do we miss any of the practical implications? Is there anything else you wanted to speak to in that area? No, I mean, I think that's good. I think there's lots of other great research out there about more specific best practices. So certainly I encourage, you know, teachers and coaches and, you know, folks to, to seek that out because there is a lot of kind of good work out there that's much more specific um, about like, you know, how can I implement this in my classroom? This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, final question for you, Dr. Patrick. What do you think makes a good teacher? This is a great question. Um, so I would say... You know, uh, first and foremost, and I think most importantly, like teachers need to have a deep care and respect for their students and the families that they serve. Um, but beyond that, kind of my take is really that like good teachers come in many forms. I don't think that good teachers are born. <laughs> I definitely think they're made. <laughs> um, and a lot of my work outside of this paper actually focuses on like schools as workplaces. And, you know, I really think that, you know, there's a lot that goes into making a good teacher um, and individual teachers, you know, they do a lot, but it also really matters like the supports and the organization that surrounds you um, and that there's lots of ways that teachers can be supported to become better and become excellent. 
Um, and so, you know, I hesitate to say like, you need these five individual qualities. Um, but in fact, like, you know, often you can be a good teacher in so many ways, but you really need support. Um, and then it's really hard to be a good teacher if you're in a setting that doesn't allow for that support and it, um, ability to improve, ability to be critical and thoughtful and um, really spend time on your practice. Dr. Susan Patrick, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Yeah, no problem. It was great to be here. A big thank you to Dr. Patrick for joining us on the show today. Here's my two cents on what we talked about. There was a topic that we were supposed to get to, and I got so wrapped up in the conversation with Dr. Patrick that I completely missed it. But what we skipped was a discussion around the growth of homogenous grouping in the past few decades. Uh, Dr. Patrick's research cites a study that grouping in fourth grade classrooms has increased from 28% to 71% of classrooms between uh, 1998 and 2009. And then her own calculations estimate that homogenous grouping in the early elementary grades increased from 41% to 79% over the same period. And there's you know a lot of factors tied to that that are outside of the scope of this episode. But those what those statistics suggest is that in 2020, you don't have to go very far to find a classroom or grade or school that is using homogenous grouping. And I was really grateful to have Dr. Patrick come on to the episode and help us tease apart some of the influences that make homogenous grouping either an effective practice or an ineffective practice and, and to what degree it can be effective, which uh, that leads me to the second idea I wanted to share. This episode was a bit more technical than most, and that was mostly by design. So if you got to this far in the show, you definitely get extra credit. Uh, usually I try to keep the methodological considerations and statistical practices outside of the show because that can be a bit more of the academic -y type stuff. But I wanted to expose the listeners to a bit more of the nuance around homogenous grouping. The more I read literacy research, the more I'm finding that it's really in the nuances, uh, the very subtle shifts on the margins that can determine whether a practice is effective or ineffective. And even the best, best practices, when implemented poorly, will, will perform poorly. You know, what Dr. Patrick found was that homogenous grouping led to a 4% increase in reading achievement for students who participate in the practice. And, and I should point out that when we say a quote-unquote 4% average, it's not just a raw average that, you know, her statistical analysis has a bunch more in it than that, like controlling for variables. But what that 4% means, and Dr. Patrick did a great job of pointing this out in the episode, is that there are teachers out there getting much more than 4%. They're getting a lot more benefit out of their homogenous grouping by the way that they've structured it and are implementing that practice. But the flip side of that is that there are also teachers whose homogenous grouping practices are going to be much lower than that 4% or perhaps even less effective than if they didn't use homogenous grouping. So when we talk about homogenous grouping from the perspectives of the differentiation camp or the stratification camp, you can likely find examples of both of those in U.S. early ed classrooms today. My hope is that through this episode, 
you can glean some of those best practices like fluid groupings and having it more skill focused and uh, using reflective practice. You can use those best practices to get more mileage out of your homogenous grouping and, and help equip you to make better instructional decisions in your classroom. That is all I have for this episode. Thank you all for joining me on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. If you have a colleague that you think would enjoy or appreciate this episode, please share it with them. I hope you have a great, restful, relaxing summer. And until next time, let's prepare to teach literacy in the fall just a little bit better. Thanks for listening to our conversation today. Remember to check out the show notes for more details. If you have feedback or a show idea, feel free to email me at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast. And until next time, let's go and teach literacy just a little bit better.